With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Salam Aleikum, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is episode 183. Fire over Hatti. Today, the Egyptians go to battle with their northern rivals. The land of Hatti, the kingdom of the Hittites, are responding to Seti's recent conquests. The two foes are worthy opponents. Their battle will be legendary. This episode comes to you on behalf of David from Hoboken, Vincent from Davis, and Rawan Al-Hwasani, location unknown. These fine folks donated to the podcast, for which I am most grateful. Rawan, Vincent, David, thank you dearly. May this tale of distant lands and ancient peoples enliven your week. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us travel the northern roads, out of Egypt, towards Syria, and into history. The year was 1300 BCE, give or take. We are not certain when, exactly, but it was sometime in the reign of Seti I. Recently, the king had led a string of military endeavours in Canaan and Syria. Seti had marched along Sinai, up the Mediterranean coast, and into the hill countries of the Levant. The pharaoh and his warriors had fought several battles at various locations, and apparently they had been victorious every single time. In Egypt, Seti decorated the walls of Karnak Temple with images of his conquests. These scenes provide the basic information for his northern wars. We have covered the campaigns against Shasu, year 1, Yenoam, slightly later, Kadesh, later still, and Amaru, date unclear. Those four battles, in four separate scenes, are the heart of Seti's northern campaigns. But there was another. A fifth scene, a fifth battle. This one was the climax. If you are standing before the north wall of Seti's hypostyle hall, you are faced with a vast tableau of scenes. If you put the doorway at the centre of this wall, directly in front of you, there are images to your left, and your right. On the right, near the bottom of the wall, we have Seti's fifth northern battle. This image, like many others, shows the pharaoh in his chariot, riding against his enemies. This time, Seti is fighting the Hittites. The Hittites of central Anatolia, modern Turkey, were the dominant power in Syria at this time. Their great kings had conquered many lands and swept aside older empires in their bid for power. The Hittite warriors were mobile, well-equipped, and skilled in battle. 
Their chariots were swift, their fortresses were strong. They were a great kingdom with great strength. Around 1300 BCE, the great king of Hatti was Mursili II. He had been in power for over 20 years, and had established a reasonably strong regime. Mursili was the youngest son of Supaluliuma, the legendary warrior and overlord of Hatti's empire. Supaluliuma, apart from being a fun name to say, had left an impressive but slightly complicated legacy. Following his death, the kingdom of Hatti had faced several challenges, both at home and abroad. Mursili, son of Supaluliuma, inherited a difficult situation. In the early years of his rule, Mursili had faced rebellions from vassals and allies, raids and battles on his northern frontiers, full-scale war in the west, and even invasion from the east. We don't have time to explore that right now, but long story short, the great king of Hatti had to deal with serious challenges on three of his four borders. In fact, pretty much the only border that had been stable was his southern one. Down in Amaru and Kadesh, Mursili's power had remained mostly intact. At least, that had been the case. Now, things were changing. Around 1300 BCE, the Hittite Empire was arguably much weaker than it had been under Supaluliuma. It was still strong, no doubt about that, but the Hittites' ability to project their military strength and diplomatic influence had, in some respects, waned. They were still in the game, but as we build to Seti's war, it is important to note Around 1300 BCE, the Hittites were in a much different position than previously. That would affect their ability to wage war. Weakness or no, the Hittites had a new problem. They were about to come into battle directly with Egypt. We are not sure which side was the aggressor. I have noticed that Egyptologists tend to assume the Hittites were attacking, but we don't actually know that for sure. A lot of the context for this battle is missing. Who started it, where exactly it took place, and even the outcome on the day? All of that is murky, but as our story takes shape, the context is relatively clear. In Anatolia, the Hittite Empire was strong, but facing serious challenges. In Egypt, the new pharaoh was vigorous and had achieved a string of victories. Whoever started this conflict Maybe the battle itself was inevitable. The two empires came to blows somewhere in modern Syria. So, we have the context. Now let's get down to business. The great battle scene that Seti commissioned shows his fight with Hatti. Once again, the images appear at Karnak Temple. It is a large tableau showing the pharaoh on one side and his enemy on the other. At the left, Seti rides his chariot, charging into battle. The horses raise their legs, leaping into the fray. The king lifts his bow to loose arrows upon the Hittites. Above, symbols of the gods give protection. A vulture, a sun disk, and a falcon. The deities support Seti's efforts, and the king rides into the fight with their blessing. The Hittite army stands before Seti. 
or rather, they fall before Seti. Across the scene, we find the enemy in chaos. Foot soldiers, armed with bows, tumble over one another, as if the pharaoh's charge has thrown them into the air. The Hittite chariots, of which there are many, are unable to resist. They turn and flee, their horses panicking and rearing. The warriors of Hatti are an interesting group. Visually, they appear similar to the Canaanites and Syrians that we have met in previous battles. But they have their own distinctive features and design. The Hittite warriors have long hair that they seem to have braided in two long plaits. That's unusual, we don't see that very often. They also wear distinctive helmets with a plume or crest emerging from the peak. The Egyptian artists don't give that much detail for their enemy. But fortunately, archaeologists and historians working in the Hittite context have reconstructed a lot of information about their armies. From Hittite monuments, especially in Anatolia, we find their warriors armed with long spears and short daggers. They also carry sickle swords, the kopesh or scimitar, and heavy bronze axes. Some warriors, probably the wealthiest, might carry iron weapons, but these were not common just yet. For protection, the soldiers may have worn bronze helmets and scale armour. Scale armour is formed of small plates, shaped like the scales of a fish, and these are sewn onto a cloth or leather base. Over the top, the warriors may have worn long coats or robes. That might explain why the Egyptian artists don't show the armour itself. Their transport is noteworthy. The Hittites are famous for deploying an army particularly heavy on chariots. We see that in Seti's reliefs. In this battle, the Hittite enemy has far more chariots than Seti's earlier foes. Maybe that reflects the actual military strength and wealth of Hatti and its vassal kingdoms. Then again, maybe it just glorifies Seti's triumph to overcome a well-resourced, well-armed enemy. Either way, it's distinctive. I'll come back to the chariots in a moment because there is something interesting about their appearance. For now, let's keep our focus on the army and the battle overall. The Hittites come onto the field in a great mass, like most of Seti's enemies. This time, though, we get evidence for their leader. At the centre of the scene, just before Seti's horses, we see a chariot. This chariot is larger than the others, and its riders are also larger than the normal Hittite warriors. The chariot bears two men. One of them is dead, falling backwards with an arrow in his chest. The other stands tall, but he faces back towards Seti and raises his arms in fear. This warrior lifts one leg over the rim of his chariot, as if he is preparing to leap from his cart. Alas, an arrow has already pierced his neck and his forehead. This warrior, larger than all the other Hittites, bends forward slightly as the hooves of Seti's horses press into his back. It seems like the enemy chieftain or general was engaged in single combat with the pharaoh. But of course, the power of Seti overcame this two-man battle team, and they fall to his assault. Who is this guy? Why is he larger than the other warriors? In the style of ancient art, the larger the figure, the more important the person. Obviously, Seti is the largest figure in the battle, he's the pharaoh. 
but the Hittite charioteer must be someone important in their army. Unfortunately, the hieroglyphs do not identify him. With that in mind, it is probably not the great king of Hatti. If Mersili, or any major royal figure, was present on the field, the Egyptians surely would have noted that. After all, triumphing over an enemy army is great. Triumphing over their king is even better. So it's probably not Mersili himself. Who else could it be? There are a few candidates. It might be one of Mersili's relatives. The kings of Hatti often appointed family members, sons, brothers, nephews, or cousins, as governors and officials in major political centres. In Syria, for example, Hittite princes ruled the cities of Karkemish and Aleppo. So it is possible that the large Hittite figure is one of those people. Again, that seems unlikely. Even if it wasn't Mersili himself, a Hittite prince would still be a major target, and the Egyptian artists probably would have identified him. The leader is most likely a vassal, some local ruler from one of the Syrian cities under Hittite rule. Or he may be a general, a military deputy sent into the region on behalf of Mersili. Either of these candidates is possible. Unfortunately, Seti's decision not to name this warrior means we can only speculate. It does say something about the status of the enemy leader. Whoever they were, Seti did not consider them worthy of being named as a rival. Maybe that does point to a general or a vassal, a deputy rather than a prince or king. Alas, that is all we can say. Anyway, Seti faces down a Hittite leader. We don't know who it is exactly, but it doesn't matter. Seti defeats them all the same. The leader flees in his chariot, while the king's arrows pierce them and their driver. So we don't know whom he was fighting exactly. What about the location? The battle reliefs at Karnak Temple do not identify the leader, but there is something in the scene that might hint at the location. Or rather, there is something missing. Most of Seti's war reliefs include a fortress or a city somewhere in the scene. At Kadesh, Yanoam, even the Shasu battle, there are towns in the vicinity of the fight. The Hittite battle is different. This time, we seem to find Seti facing his enemy in the open. There is no town, no city, or fortress in the area. If that is intentional, maybe it gives the rough vicinity of the fight. We can probably imagine the Hittites and Egyptians facing each other in a shallow hill country, or a wide open plain. That would make sense. Both of these armies were heavy on the chariots, and war carts work best in open, flat spaces with room to manoeuvre. So if the battle scene is accurate, this fight probably happened somewhere rural, away from major fortifications. Possible candidates for this battle are the Orontes River Valley near Kadesh, the coastal plains near Ugarit, or maybe further inland near Tunip, Alalak, or Aleppo. That is a broad area, several hundred square kilometres, but since the pharaoh doesn't include a city, we must assume it is somewhere rural, between the major towns. That also might hint at the military context. If Seti or the Hittites were not fighting near a fortified position, 
this engagement might have been slightly unexpected. Perhaps the Egyptian army was marching through the region when they and the Hittites stumbled upon one another. Or maybe the Hittites were moving towards the Egyptian borders, and when Seti heard of this, he moved to intercept. Since we don't know who started the war, it is impossible to say which side instigated the battle. But the lack of a city, and the absence of a high-ranking leader for the Hittites, might imply an accidental or surprise conflict. That is speculative on my part, but it would make sense. And it may explain why Seti's battle scenes do not include a city. Seti charges, the enemy crumbles. Above the scene, lines of hieroglyphs record the pharaoh's version of events. As you can imagine, this text is bombastic, full of praise for the victorious king. Apparently, Seti conquered, quote, the fallen or wretched land of the Hittites, Ta en Hatti, among whom his person made a great heap of corpses. Seti is powerful of strength, a man of doing or action. He is victorious like Montu, great of strength like the son of Nut or Seth. He is great of terror like Baal on the hill countries. Seti is a mighty bull, sharp-horned and strong of heart, who smashes the northerners and tramples on the Hittites, who slays their chiefs so that they lie prostrate in their own blood, who enters among the enemy like a blast of fire, and makes them into something that does not exist. End quote. Seti rages like the most fearsome gods, Montu, the falcon lord of war, Seth, the master of storms, and Seti's patron deity, and Baal, the storm god of Canaan and Syria. These divine patrons strengthen Seti's arm, they guide his arrows, and bring the enemy down. Apparently, the pharaoh's attack is so powerful, his enemies crumble into ash. Imagine riding a chariot, wielding a flamethrower, and you get some sense of Seti's bombast. Naturally, the pharaoh claims total victory, and supposedly, his enemies' bodies are piled up in a great heap. That is probably an exaggeration. As we'll see later, the actual outcome of the battle is murkier than Seti presents it. Nevertheless, the king implies great violence. The Hittite battle is kind of the climax to Seti's war imagery. It has everything from the other scenes, but even more. More chariots, more gods supporting the king, larger enemies, the Hittite chief, and more chaos overall. The artists throw everything into this battle. There are no side shows, no cattlemen fleeing with animals, no warriors hiding in forests, no women and children panicking in fear. The scene is total battle, Seti triumphant overall. It is the epitome of the king in conquest. Seti's army attacked, the Hittites fled. At least, that is the image Pharaoh presents. But can we trust it? What was the significance of this battle in the big picture? And following their clash, what happened to these two empires? Did they carry on fighting, or did they find a way to make peace? We will explore those questions after the break. See you in a moment. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show, historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The year was 1300 BCE, approximately. On a battlefield in Syria, the Egyptians faced the Hittites. Allegedly, this battle was a defeat for Hatti. The war scenes on the walls of Karnak Temple show Seti I triumphing over his enemies. Following that battle, we get a second scene. This time, Seti shows the aftermath of his victory. The king appears with his chariot, gathering up the prisoners. Lines of captives, bound with ropes, march before the pharaoh. There are 18 of them, all men, in two registers. They wear long robes, with sashes or belts around the waist. Their hair is braided, and some of them wear headbands or helmets with tassels. The men walk in procession, and their bindings have different configurations. A couple of prisoners have their hands tied behind their back. Others are bound at the elbows, crossed in front of their waist. Some prisoners have ropes around their necks that hold their wrists up to the chest. Finally, Some men have their arms bound over their heads, bending forward in a contortion of discomfort. At a glance, the image may seem unnecessarily harsh, all enemies subjugated by the pharaoh's might. But looking at it in context, we can get a sense of what is being communicated. These images appear on the walls of a temple. In that religious context, a house of the god, the imagery of Egypt's king, especially where it involves war, must show scenes of total victory. Because this is a temple context, Seti's battles reflect upon the great gods themselves. They are Seti's patron, they support him in war. So Seti has to win. The capture of prisoners and their subjugation is a victory for the pharaoh and for the gods. At the same time, that context makes the enemy seem more wretched. After all, what kind of warrior would willingly fight against the gods? With that in mind, the subjugation and binding of these prisoners might appear harsh to modern sensibilities. But if we view it in the context of the ancient beliefs, 
especially their religious beliefs, we start to understand why they show it like this. Seti stands by his chariot. He has one foot raised on the cart, as if he is preparing to mount. The other foot is on the ground, and the king turns back to look at more prisoners that are gathered behind him. With his right hand, Seti grips the reins of his chariot. He holds the ropes leading to the horses, and he also clutches weapons. The kopesh, or scimitar sword, rises straight out of his right hand. There is also a large quiver of arrows and javelins attached to the chariot body. And the king holds a whip, ready to drive the horses. Apparently, Seti is in the very moment of preparing to depart. He has won his battle, gathered his captives, and now he will take them home. Seti's right hand is busy, his left hand is even busier. While holding the reins of the chariot, Seti turns back, and with his left hand, he holds his bow, along with two sets of captives. The king grips his weapon, but he also holds ropes. These ropes lead back to the right of the scene, where they attach to a pair of chariots. Two war carts belonging to the Hittites march behind Seti. Upon the chariots, we see Hittites bound and tied, leaning forward in submission. Seti binds these men and their carts and drags them forward. Along with the chariots, Seti also grips the hair of three additional captives. These men, bending in humiliation, are ground down by Seti's fist. They have long hair, easier to grip, and they wear the usual robes. There are no hieroglyphs to identify these men, so we don't know if they are particularly important or high-ranking figures. Regardless, Seti's left hand grips three more Hittites by the hair, as well as the two chariots. The pharaoh must be incredibly dexterous and strong. Hieroglyphs around the scene describe the situation. It's the sort of grandiose language you would expect, but the pharaoh does give some detail about his captives and how he viewed them. The hieroglyphs say, quote, The chiefs, or great ones, of the foreign countries that do not know Egypt, those whom his person, Seti, brought away as living captives, with their products on their backs, consisting of every good thing from their hill countries. End quote. In short, Seti is taking the captives, and supposedly they are carrying plunder and tribute on their backs. Curiously, Seti does not call these prisoners Hittites. He refers to these individuals as the chiefs of foreign countries, the Weru Khasetiu. That adds to my suspicion that the army that Seti faced was mostly a composite of local troops and forces. If the royal Hittite army had come in person, we might expect the pharaoh to reference the Hittites more specifically. I could be wrong, it could just be a simple oversight by the artists. But it's an interesting aspect, and it might hint at the larger story. Just above Seti, more columns of hieroglyphs describe his deeds. Seti records how, quote, The mighty king returned after he had triumphed, when he had destroyed the hill countries and trampled the land of Hatti. He causes the rebellious ones to cease their rebelling, and all lands are become peaceful. The terror of his person has entered into them. His aura has invaded their hearts. The chiefs of the hill countries are bound in front of him. 
End quote. This time, Seti does reference Hati as a target of his rage, but he uses a geographical term, the land of Hati, or Ta in Hati. That is incredibly broad. Arguably, the land of Hati could include any region that is loyal to the Hittite ruler. A vassal state, a border territory, even an allied kingdom might technically count as Hittite land. So again, this description is frustratingly vague. Seti is giving us the sense of the battle and who he has defeated, but he's not very forthcoming with the details. So just after the battle, Seti is gathering his captives. The king is preparing to depart to bring his prisoners home. Upon returning to Egypt, Seti will present these captives to the great gods. The Hittite war images end with the pharaoh bringing prisoners to Karnak. He gives these captives over, and even smites them in front of deities like Amun-Ra, Mut, and Khonsu. These triumph scenes appear for many of Seti's battle reliefs. I haven't discussed them yet on the podcast, but not to worry, that will come very soon, when we explore the aftermath of Seti's northern wars. Suffice to say, the images present a relatively clear narrative. Seti wins the fight, collects his prisoners, and then brings them home. Those captives from Hati, Syria, Canaan, are presented to the gods. They will serve Egypt and its divine rulers. So the wall reliefs at Karnak Temple show Seti triumphing in battle, and he then gathers prisoners to take home to Egypt. That is the artistic version, the Egyptian account of what happened. Looking at the big picture though, what can we learn about the Egyptian-Hittite war? When the two sides clashed somewhere in Syria, who actually won? The battle reliefs at Karnak present an image of total victory, Hittite warriors fleeing in terror. But of course, we treat those images with caution. Seti I may very well have fought the Hittites and many other peoples, but were his victories truly overwhelming triumphs, complete routs of the enemy? That is trickier to pin down. Looking at the bigger picture, there are a few possibilities for the outcome of this war. The first option is an Egyptian victory. Perhaps Seti's artists captured a true event. Maybe the Hittite army broke before an Egyptian onslaught, and they fled back to their strongholds. That is certainly possible. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, the Hittite kingdom was not as strong as it had been a couple decades earlier. Invasions, rebellions, even plague had taken their toll on the kingdom, and its ability to project power. With those issues facing them, it is possible that a battle in Syria, far away from the Hittite homeland, resulted in a terrible defeat. In that scenario, the Egyptians could have benefited from Hittite instability. In those circumstances, we must treat Seti's claim of total victory as, at the very least, a possibility. So we don't know if Seti won the battle outright. But he probably didn't lose it. Why do I say that? Well, the aftermath of this battle is relatively clear. Seti faced the Hittites somewhere in central Syria. If the Egyptians had lost this battle, we would expect Hatti to expand further south, 
to invade Kadesh and Amaru once again. But as far as we know, they didn't. Egypt maintained control of those regions for the next five or ten years at least. So in the context, I think we can guess that the Egyptians did not lose this battle. Maybe the most likely scenario is a stalemate. According to the evidence, the Hittites did not come further south, but Seti also didn't go north. The war reliefs at Karnak end with the Hittite battle. There is no reference to an additional campaign into central or northern Syria. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. If Seti tried and failed, he wouldn't commemorate that on a temple. But, on the evidence available, the best we can say is that Amaru and Kadesh were the northern limit of Seti's conquests. Apparently, he didn't go any further north. With that in mind, I suspect the Hittite-Egyptian war was a stalemate. Whoever won the battle itself, the larger conflict seems like a draw. The Hittites did not go any further south, the Egyptians did not go further north. Following their engagement, the two armies, apparently, withdrew to their respective lands. It seems like a pause. A stalemate does not take away from what Seti and his warriors achieved. The Egyptian army had done much in the past few years. The reconquest of Kadesh and Amru was a significant achievement, given how long those kingdoms had been rebels. Likewise, a direct confrontation with the Hittites was no small feat. Bear in mind, the battlefield in Syria was much closer to Hatti's homelands than it was to Egypt. The pharaoh's troops were projecting their strength far from the Nile Valley, and while they had allies and garrisons in Canaan, this wasn't a stroll down the road. For the Egyptians, it was harder to maintain supplies, gather information, and ensure security this far from home. The Hittites, by contrast, were acting closer to their normal territory. So in the strategic sense, Hatti had the home field advantage, at least on paper. For the Egyptians, battling the Hittites to a draw was still quite the achievement, a victory in itself. So what do we make of this war? Personally, I see it as a stalemate, at least strategically. Whoever won the battle itself on the day, the Egyptians blocked the Hittites from coming south, but the Hittites also maintained control over the north. The two empires may temporarily have found their balance. The kingdoms of Syria were now divided between them, and for the moment, the two armies may have been equally matched. Considering the difficulties of the past few decades, plague, diplomatic uncertainty, military upheavals, Seti's regime did something remarkable. They overcame the inherent challenges of long-distance warfare, and they faced down a determined opponent, possibly defeating them on a distant battle. The victory wasn't total. Seti did not reconquer all of Syria and sweep into Hatti to destroy their kingdom. But realistically, that was never going to happen. The days of Thutmose I and Thutmose III were long gone, Pharaohs could no longer rampage through the highlands and lowlands with impunity. Now, Egypt's enemies were more numerous and stronger, with larger armies and more sophisticated governments. So the situation facing Seti I 
was far different than his all-conquering predecessors. From that perspective, his troops deserve applause for achieving what they did. So the Egyptian-Hittite war may have been a stalemate. At the very least, the two empires seem to have found an equilibrium. The pharaoh of Egypt held sway over Canaan and southern Syria, down to Kadesh and Amaru. The great king of Hatti dominated the north, lands like Carchemish, Aleppo, and more. The two empires, facing each other directly, may have found themselves evenly matched. When that happened, we might wonder, what now? Following the war, Seti may have forged a treaty with the Hittite ruler. This part is speculative, based on later information. It comes from another document, recording an agreement between Egypt and Hatti. A few decades after Seti, we get this reference. Quote, Formerly, since eternity, the gods of Hatti did not permit hostilities between the great ruler of Egypt and the great ruler of Hatti. The two kings acted by a treaty between them. End quote. Unfortunately, this reference is terribly vague. It does not name either of the great rulers who were involved in this treaty. And there are at least four pharaohs who could fit the bill. Depending on your chronology and which scholar you read, the king of Egypt could have been Seti I, his father Ramesses I, their patron Horemheb, or even I. So we can't say for sure whether Seti made an agreement following his war. But it is possible that after this clash, the king of Hatti and the pharaoh made a new agreement. Later, that treaty would be broken, and we'll tell that story when it comes. But for now, there is a possibility that Seti's Hittite war ended with a truce. Peace in their time. Around 47 BCE, the Roman general Julius Caesar conducted a military campaign in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. Supposedly, following a victory, Caesar summarized his work with the simple phrase, Weni, Widi, Wiki. I came, I saw, I conquered. Seti I's triumph over Canaan and Syria were somewhat longer in duration, a series of campaigns rather than one, but the scale of his victories, in the context, is similarly impressive. One might imagine the pharaoh summarizing his conquests in similar terms. In Egyptian, Seti could easily have said something like Yuni Maani Ichenni. It would, perhaps, be justified. The Hittite battle is the last episode in Seti's northern wars. The king would fight again in different lands, and we'll cover those in the future. For now, the conflict with Hatti is the final recorded instance of Seti in the north. Looking back over the past few years, the Egyptian army had returned to regional supremacy. They had subjugated the Shasu, or Bedouin, defeated rebels and cities like Yanoam. They recaptured Kadesh and Amaru, significant kingdoms in southern Syria. Finally, they had faced the Hittites themselves. Seti's warriors had achieved a string of victories, each greater than the last. For the next few years, at least, 
they could rest in the knowledge that their strength had been successful. The Egyptian-Hittite war that Seti describes remains a shadowy affair. It happened sometime during Seti's reign, probably following his invasion of Kadesh and Amaru. But a lot of the details are fuzzy. Who initiated the war? Did Seti make the first move, going further into Syria? Or did the Hittites come south, retaliating for the loss of their vassals? Either scenario is possible. Reading the battle scene itself, we can assume the fight happened somewhere in modern-day Syria. Near the coast or further inland, the battlefield was probably a shallow or reasonably flat area. The Hittite army came in some force, fielding a great number of chariots. Their leader is currently anonymous, but could have been a general, local vassal, or maybe a member of the Hittite royal house. Whoever it was, Seti I claims to have routed his enemy completely. We take that with a grain of natron, because Egyptian philosophy, their view of kingship, demanded an image of victory and conquest. Looking at the battle in context, and its aftermath, we can guess that Seti and the Hittites fought each other, maybe to a stalemate. I have described these battles in glorious terms. That is how Seti, the Egyptian state, and the artists communicated it. But we should always remember the human cost. The burned houses, farms, and villages. The grieving families. The wounded or dying soldiers bleeding out on some field for their ruler's ambitions. At the end, most warriors do not die in glory, quote-unquote. Most of the time, they die crying, mummy. It is important to keep that in mind, lest we grow too fond of conflict and destruction. Whoever won the battle itself, neither army pushed further north or further south. This clash between Seti and Hati seems to have resulted in a temporary truce. That might have been sealed with a treaty, but it's uncertain. Regardless, the outcome overall was a positive for Egypt. Seti's battle, whether a victory or a stalemate, secured his recent conquests in Amaru and Kadesh, and they guaranteed Egyptian supremacy over southern Syria. For the next ten years, approximately, the pharaohs were overlords of these lands. That was a significant achievement for Seti, his government, and the troops who fought in his service. On the next episode, we will return to Egypt. Sort of. The pharaoh has achieved his great victories, and we've explored the imagery around that. But art is one thing, reality is quite different. I'd like to take a moment to meet Seti's warriors, the soldiers themselves, and the officers who led them. How did Seti's army operate? How was it organised? Where did the troops live, both at home and on campaign? Next time, we'll start getting to grips with the military apparatus of 19th Dynasty Egypt, the troops, the fortresses, and their stories. That is our next episode. 
Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Special thanks for this episode must go to the priests, my top-tier backers on Patreon.com. The generosity of these folks is incredible. Thank you to TJ, Evan, Yola, Veronica, Andy and Chelsea, Ashley, Linda, Terry, Stephen, Kyla, Martha, Mykost, Paul, and Nadin. You are too kind, all of you, and I am in your debt. Hopefully, Seti's victories will bring tribute flowing to your coffers, and the great gods Seth, Montu, Hathor, and Baal will bring rain, fertility, and triumph to your houses. That's all from me. I'll see you soon. Take care, and may the great storm gods of Egypt, Canaan, and Anatolia protect you and yours. Hello folks, welcome to a brief epilogue. Seti's battle relief shows a classic Hittite army, at least as far as the infantry are concerned. However, there is a discrepancy between Seti's art and other records for the Hittites. It concerns the chariots. Seti I shows his enemy riding into battle in classic two-man chariots. There is a driver and a warrior, and the war carts themselves have a typical Syrian or Egyptian-style frame. That is how Seti depicts them. About ten years after Seti, though, another pharaoh, facing the Hittites in battle, showed something different. In those later scenes, we find the Hittites charging into battle with much heavier chariots. The later images show war carts that carry three men, a driver and two warriors. Those chariots also have a different frame, with axles placed in a different area of the cart. These heavy chariots, quote-unquote, seem to have been much stronger in a charge, but they sacrificed some speed and manoeuvrability. The point is, Seti I shows one type of chariot, but his successors show a different one. The discrepancy is curious. What could it mean? There are a couple of possibilities. On the one hand, maybe Seti's artists did not depict the Hittite chariots accurately. Perhaps the royal sculptors, working years after the battle, never actually saw a Hittite chariot in person. So when they had to show the war carts, they just copied what they already knew. That kind of simplification might explain the gap. Another possibility is that these Hittite charioteers, quote-unquote, were not traditional Hittite warriors. What I mean is, this army may appear to be Hittite and be serving their king, but the warriors themselves may actually come from different places. Vassal states, or mercenaries, may have formed the bulk of this Hittite, quote-unquote, army. In that case, maybe the chariots are accurate because they aren't strictly Hittite chariots. That's the second possibility. Finally, there is another possibility. Maybe Seti depicts the Hittite chariots accurately, but ten years later, his successor was facing a different type of force. In other words, maybe this battle shows the Hittites using one strategy, but they subsequently changed in future battles. That's the argument you'll find among several Egyptologists. It also appears among Hittiteologists. The Hittite historian Trevor Bryce, for example, has a slightly bolder view of the discrepancy. In his 2019 book, Warriors of Anatolia, 
A Concise History of the Hittites, Bryce discusses this issue. He says, quote, Apart from the record of the later battle, we have no evidence for three-man chariots in Hittite warfare. This leads me, Professor Bryce, to suspect that the three-man chariot crew was purely a one-off tactic, an attempt to give the Hittites an edge over their opponents. We have no indications that the three-man chariot was ever used again by the Hittites. End quote. That's an interesting idea. Bryce's research specialty, for decades, has been the Hittite Empire and its history. If anyone has reason to question the three-man chariot model, it should be him. It does sound strange, though, to adopt an entirely new technology for a single battle. Granted, the Hittites may have been experimenting with the new vehicles, but if they worked, if the three-man chariot was so effective, why not use them again? That's one of those what-if questions that current evidence can't really answer. The point is, we know the Hittites were using heavy chariots about ten years after Seti I, but that might be a later innovation. Perhaps when Seti faced him, the warriors of Hatti were still using a classic lighter cart. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.